Good morning, church. It is May, it is spring, and it is the Lord's day. And I am so thankful for this constant week in, week out, coming together. A chance to, to pray and to hear from God's word and to focus our hearts and minds on, on Jesus. And I wanted to begin our time together this morning with a reading from a lament. A, re- a reading from a book about grief. A reading from the book of Lamentations. But consider what Jeremiah writes in a season of lament. He says this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's a new day. It is a day of new mercies. And I hope that this Lord's day will be a day when you are aware of the mercies of God and that you are encouraged in him. And I hope that that comes through the hearing of God's word this morning, but I also hope that you make this entire day a day that's set aside for finding encouragement and hope in the Lord. We need that every day, but especially on the Lord's day as we prepare for our new week. This morning, we are going to be returning to the gospel of Mark. I'm going to continue our walk through that, that gospel. But before we go, I want to take time to pray with you and to give us a chance to prepare our hearts for the time we are going to spend in God's word. Before we pray, I do want to make you aware of one prayer request, um, something I want you to, to know about and to join us in praying for. And Those of you who are a part of our church, you know, you know Hank, and you know what a dear part of our church family he is. And many of you know that about a week ago, he was diagnosed with COVID-19. And up until just a couple days ago, he had shown no symptoms. But uh, on Friday, he, he did require oxygen. And so right now they're keeping him stable. He's still at his nursing home. Uh, but I just want to continue to pray for, for him. And I wanted you to be aware of that. And, um, and so you can join us in praying. So I'm going to pray for Hank, but also just for us as a church and and ask God to prepare our hearts as we uh, go to his word together this morning. So would you join me in, in prayer? God, each morning many of us come to you in prayer individually, but Sunday, the Lord's day is a special day. It's the day that you've called us to come together as a church and even now we join together bringing our prayers and our requests to you. Together as a church, we acknowledge that you are our creator. You made us. You are our sustainer. You give us every breath. You are our sovereign father. You work all things according to your good purpose, working in us that which is pleasing in your sight. You are our keeper holding us fast as we stand against the world and the flesh and the devil. And you are our hope. The one we believe will keep us both in this life and through eternity. There's no way to skirt the truth. We need you. And this morning we come to you asking for your help and asking that your will will be done. And we ask this specifically in the, in the life of Hank. We love him and we know that you love him. And God, we ask now for your care and for your healing work in his body. We know that you could heal at any moment and this is our desire, that you would heal him, that you would make him whole and well, that you would give him peace and grace. God, we also ask this for all those who are impacted right now by this virus. We ask for healing across our land. But again, God, we ask that your will would be done. And if you choose to move another way, we ask that you would make us sensitive to what you are doing. That you would help us to grow in grace and knowledge through this season. We also ask that this be an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. 
as people recognize maybe for the first time the real fragile nature of life. We also come this morning asking for wisdom. Both as individuals and as a church, we have decisions to make in the days and the weeks to come. Where we will go and where we will not go and when we will gather and whether we will cease from gathering for a time. God, we want to love each other well. We want to honor you. And we want to keep one another safe. For these decisions and many others, we need your wisdom. And you have told us in your word that if we ask for wisdom, you will give it. So this is our ask. Would you give us wisdom? God, as we come together this morning, we recognize that we are united because of the work that you've done through your son. And this morning, as we come together, we want to give you thanks for Jesus. Thank you for his incarnation, that he lived as a man among us. Thank you for his perfect life, that he fulfilled all righteousness. Thank you for his sacrificial death on our behalf. Thank you for his glorious resurrection. And God, as we thank you for Jesus, we also ask that you would help us live as those who have been changed by him. Would you fix our eyes on things above and not on things on the earth? Would you help us to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to you in Christ Jesus? Would you make us the husbands and wives, parents and employees that you would have us to be? As we live out these roles, would you help us to display the love and the character of Jesus? Lord, would you also make us bold and fierce witnesses the gospel of Jesus Christ? We ask that you would use us individually and as a church to proclaim the good news of salvation to those around us, and that you would give us confidence in your power to change even the hardest of hearts. And we also pray for our children, that you would help them to grow in love and in longing for you. And especially in this season, and even on this day, as they are maybe hearing this prayer, and week after week hearing the sermon as it comes through their TV or parents' computer, God, I would, use, would you use this time in a unique way to draw our kids to yourself? Would you awaken in them a recognition for their need for you? And I pray this for all of us. Would you use your word this morning to open our hearts to the beauty of Jesus, to the sufficiency of his work on our behalf? Would you quiet our hearts, open our ears, focus our minds, and speak to us through your word? Change us by the power of your spirit, we ask. We are your people gathered in your name, and we long to hear from you. Hear our prayers. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I hope you have your Bibles and that you will open them to the Gospel of Mark. Our text for this morning is found in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. I just want to start by reading that portion of Scripture for you. So I'll read and ask you to follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, but also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with 
anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of God. May God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Isn't it true that when people are asked to describe Jesus, there are few characteristics that are common? Maybe you've noticed this. Most often when people describe Jesus, they use words like humble or meek. There's always plenty said about his compassion and about his kindness. And these are all true characteristics that Jesus exemplified. He is humble. He is meek. He is compassionate and kind. But I think so often people emphasize these traits of Jesus so much so that people have this perception of Jesus as being soft-spoken or shy, maybe passive, that he was deferential and reserved. That's the way Jesus is often depicted, but it's not an accurate representation. And I think the only way you can maintain that perspective of Jesus, that caricature of Jesus, is simply not to read the Gospels. And in particular, as we've read and worked through Mark chapter 2, Jesus is anything but passive or reserved. If you've been with us through the study of this chapter, You'll remember that we're following this series of events in which each one, the Pharisees, are confronting and questioning Jesus. What's so clear in this chapter is that Jesus isn't living a, a quiet life that fits nicely into the social and religious norms of the day. No, Jesus is living and speaking in ways that fly in the face of their religious traditions. And as the Pharisees and others begin to confront him, he's not meek or shy. He's not subtle or soft-spoken. No, he comes with authority. He doesn't hesitate to stand up to the Pharisees. But what was the problem? What was causing this confrontation from the Pharisees? Well, the source of the conflict, the question on the table is, how do people approach God? Or how are people brought in to right standing with God? And I hope you understand what an important question this is. And for the Pharisee, the question was answered through this overbearing system of do's and don'ts, of religious rituals and rules. But now, Jesus comes on the scene, and so much of what he does and, and what he says, it's contrary to what the Pharisees do and say and what they've been teaching. Jesus has come with a seeming dismissal of their religious tradition. And that's the heart of the conflict. And as the Pharisees confront Jesus, he isn't passive, and he doesn't flinch at their questions. No, he doubles down. And what we've seen over and over throughout Mark chapter 2 is that Jesus speaks with authority. And he makes it clear that salvation is not achieved through adherence to the, the system of the Pharisees. No, salvation is achieved through repentance and faith. And Jesus has even gone so far as to make this claim that he is the one who has the ability to forgive sins. He's doing and saying radical things. And people are taking notice. He does not back down under the pressure. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw Jesus sitting and eating in the house of Levi, and they came and they accused him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. In another gospel, they, they call him a friend of sinners, and he embraces the title. Then last week, we saw that they confronted he and his disciples for not fasting according to their tradition. But Jesus told them, I've come bringing a new and better way. I'm the new wine. I need new wineskins can't put me into the old wineskins of your tradition. He's like a new patch, and it's not to be sewed to the old garments of, of their systems. Jesus isn't passive. He has come with authority, and over the weeks, we've worked through what is a, a set of five confrontations and five conversations 
that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And this morning, we're going to consider the final two. And they, they go together because they deal with the same issue. We're going to see that Jesus takes on what's probably the most sacred part of their entire system of works-based righteousness. See, there was nothing more distinctly Jewish than keeping the Sabbath. It was something that set them apart from all the nations around them, this weekly habit. Maybe the only thing that's as high up in making them distinctly Jewish would be circumcision, but that's not as prominent and it doesn't happen as often. The Sabbath is this week-by-week opportunity for them to show that they have set themselves apart, that they are the people of God. And this is what God intended, that every week they would have the reminder, they would display to the world they were his. But of course, for many, it became a prime opportunity for showing their piety. This was the way of the Pharisees. They would take something good that God had given and they would use it in a way that God never intended. They would turn it into something that was more about them and their own righteousness than it was about God. And it had been given for his glory. That's what they do with the Sabbath. They, they hold the Sabbath up and they make it a measure of their ability to obey. And now we see that they're taking this and they're confronting Jesus because he's not obeying the way that they obey. And they accuse him of not obeying the law, of breaking the Sabbath. Their goal is to shame and to discredit Jesus. But, of course, for Jesus... This is another chance for him to show them the error of their ways. And in the process, to point to the salvation that he has come to accomplish and to offer. Hopefully as we read the passage, you were able to get a picture of the the scene in your mind. We have Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath day. They're walking through a grain field, most likely a, a wheat field. As they're walking, the disciples are helping themselves to a snack. They're pulling off some of the grain um, to eat as they walk through the field. And what you should know is what's being described is very common. Many of their walking paths would cut through a field or run alongside one. And it was perfectly acceptable for someone walking through a field to grab something and to eat. In fact, this is even addressed in the book of Deuteronomy. Part of the law recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 23. We read, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. And if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So this is helpful insight. It is perfectly acceptable as you're walking along to to pull some off to eat, but there's some qualifiers. One, you can't put any in your bag, you can't take a load home, and you can't use any tools. So you can't just go into your neighbor's field and start harvesting, but anyone who's walking along is is welcome to grab some and to to have a bite. I told Michelle and the boys this week as we were walking down the sidewalk in our neighborhood, and we we passed a tree that's full of berries, and I told them, hey, we're, we're free to take a few. It's in the Bible. Grab a couple, it's fair game. We, just can't, we can't stuff our pockets. Well, don't know if that's our neighbor's philosophy, but, but that, that was what was laid out here in the scriptures for, for this day. This was common practice. But nevertheless, what we see in verse 24 is that the Pharisees are watching, and they are quick to call foul. They see this as a clear breaking of the Sabbath. Now, before we go any further, it, probably wise for us to stop and just remember and be reminded of what we're talking about when we talk about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a good thing established by God. And we normally think about the Sabbath as part of the Ten Commandments, but it actually has ties all the way back to creation. The idea of Sabbath is rooted in the pattern that God established when he created the world. So if you read Genesis 1, we're told that everything in the world, all things were made in six days. And after creating everything in six days, on the seventh day, God rested from his work. 
He had a day of rest. And that's what Sabbath means. It means to cease from work or to rest. So we have the first illusion of this pattern of rest in the opening scenes of the Bible. But it comes back when God gives the law to his people. So in the giving of the Ten Commandments, we read commandment number four, recorded in Exodus 20. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. This was the law given to the people of God, patterned after his example. It was a day given to them for rest. But it was also a day that was given to them to remind them of the special covenant relationship that they had with God. So we read later in Exodus chapter 31, the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout all generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout all generations as a covenant forever. So here we get more insight into the significance of the day. It was partially about the people of God stopping to rest. But it was also a reminder to them of the covenant relationship that they had with God. And it came every week. The way they tracked days The Sabbath day began at sunset on Friday and went all the way until sunset on Saturday. So a 24-hour period set aside by God for his people. And he set some parameters. It was to be a day of rest. And as such, there was no work to be done. And if you read through the Old Testament, there are some guidelines given as to what could and couldn't be done, what should and shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. But the one thing we see over and over again is that the Sabbath was not meant to be a burden. It was meant to be a gift. It was a weekly gift of rest and remembrance and worship. But of course, what what you may already know is that what God intended as a gift became a suffocating burden as more and more rules were added, not by God, but by men. And this is something that we've seen before and we've even done it. We add rules to keep us from breaking other rules. As a parent, you've probably done this. The rule is don't go in the street. We know our kids and we want to keep them safe, so another rule is added. Don't, don't go to the curb. In fact, don't go to the sidewalk. In fact, stay in the driveway, and before long, they're still in the house, right? We add rules on rules to keep us from breaking the main rule. Well, the main rule here is the rule of the Sabbath, that no work should be done. But over time, more and more rules were added. We can go to Jewish writings and see that there was a list of 39 things that defined what constituted work. And then other things were added to define those definitions. And so there became this long and burdensome list of what could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath day. Limits on how many steps you could take. And they didn't have step counters. Limits on how far you could go from your home. What you could pick up and what you could not pick up. You couldn't light a fire, and that included lighting a candle. And you couldn't put a fire out, which means you couldn't put out a candle. You couldn't wash anything. Then here's the the extra rule. If you spill water on the floor, you can't clean it up because cleaning up that water would be washing the floor. The list goes on and on. And these these are some of the more rational ones. There's a whole list. And by the time of Jesus, it was very safe to say that the Sabbath wasn't perceived as a joy and as a gift, but as a burden. 
And among the many rules that have been developed, there were specific guidelines for, for harvesting. This brings us back to our story. See, for the Pharisees, to, to pick a head of grain was reaping a crop. And reaping or harvesting a crop was work. And this was the charge. Your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. Why? They're harvesting on Sabbath. Verse 24, why are they doing what is not lawful? And just like last week, we recognize that what they're being accused of breaking isn't even the law of God. It's man-made ceremonial law. But nevertheless, Jesus answers his accusers. And he does so in a way that tells us so much about his mission and the nature of salvation. What we see starting in verse 25 is that Jesus begins his response by, by offering the Pharisees an example from Scripture of a similar situation when human need took priority over law. It's a situation from the life of David. You can go and read it in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Let me just give you quick context. This is after David has been anointed by Samuel as the future king, but he's not king yet. Saul is still ruling. And you'll remember that during this period, David was growing in popularity and Saul was jealous. So jealous, in fact, that he planned to put David's death and even attempted to do so on several occasions. And so David became a, a refugee. He was running for his life and some of his men with him. And it was during this time when they are running from Saul, they are traveling and hungry, and they arrive at the tabernacle in Nob. And when they get there, David asks the priest for food for he and his men. And the priest tells him, we don't, we don't have any food here except for the bread of the presence. Now, David knew what that was. Let me tell you what that is. This was a ceremonial bread that was set out in the tabernacle each Sabbath day. Twelve loaves of bread that represented the twelve tribes of Israel. And it was set in the tabernacle to represent the, the presence of God with his people. It represented his blessing on them and their allegiance to him. So this bread was set out each Sabbath day, but each Sabbath day the old twelve loaves were taken... And the priests were free to eat those, but only the priests. But now here comes David, the anointed and coming king, and he and his men are hungry. We read in 1 Samuel that the priests take the bread of the presence, and they give it to David and to his men. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, it shouldn't surprise you to hear an example of someone breaking the law of God. Unfortunately, that happens. But what is surprising is that there's no mention here or anywhere else in the Bible of a rebuke or any kind of consequences. In the story, it seems like the needs of the coming king took priority over the law. And now, this is the story that Jesus is telling to the Pharisees. Did you notice how he started? He said to them, Have you never read? what David did? Have you never read your Bibles? Don't you know the story of David? Well, of course they had read it, and Jesus knew that. There's a couple of things that are worth noting. We won't take time this morning to flesh out, but there is a connection between King David, who the Pharisees saw as the ideal king, and now Jesus connecting himself to David. We know that Jesus is the final king, the one who will sit on the eternal throne of David. Significant. But the main thing to see here is that Jesus appeals to this as a precedent. It's not an excuse. They broke the law and so we can break the law, but it, it's an example of a precedent that was set. And the heart of the precedent is that there are times when human need should take priority over ceremonial law. Say that again. There are times when human need can and should take priority over ceremonial law. Now, remember that for the Pharisees, there was this commitment to obeying every single part of the law all the time. And in fact, they're going to add rules on top of rules. 
But now Jesus is making a case for grace and compassion. For the, for the Pharisees, legalism always prevailed. But Jesus suggests that there are times when the spirit of the law and the needs of people matter more than legalistic adherence. And that's not to discredit the law. But Jesus knew that the Pharisees were using the law not to honor God, but to enslave people and to puff themselves up. They missed the purpose of the law. The law was given to point to God. It was given for the good of people. We see that affirmed in verse 27. That's what Jesus says. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We have an appeal to the very heart and the purpose of the law and of the Sabbath. It goes back to what we already alluded to, that God gave the Sabbath to his people as a gift and a blessing, not as a chore and a burden. It was meant to bless, not to oppress. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And you need to make clear that Jesus isn't trying to minimize or dishonor or say that the law is not important. The law of God was good and it was meant for good. But the Pharisees had turned it into a burdensome yoke. And beyond that, they had made it the, the core of their man-centered doctrine of salvation. But of course, Jesus had come to proclaim that no one can be saved by works of the law. Salvation is only available to those who repent and believe. This is clear to us, but it wasn't clear to the Pharisees. And these were men who had given their lives to studying and knowing the law. They had spent their lives teaching the law to others and calling others to obedience. In their world, they were experts on the law. Which should bring up the question, if we don't know much about Jesus, does he really know more, about, more than the Pharisees? Who is he to say when the Sabbath should be... Um, when there should be freedom with these rules. Well, we don't have to go any further than the next verse to see why Jesus is the one who can speak to this. It's really an exclamation point, not only for this paragraph or this section, but for this entire portion of Mark. It changes everything. Jesus says this in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. He refers to himself as the son of man. And we talked about a, a, a few weeks ago what that means, this title, son of man. It's a title that Jesus only uses of himself. And it refers to the fact that he is both man and God. Jesus is saying here in no uncertain terms, here is why I have the authority to say these things about the Sabbath. I am God. I created the Sabbath. I am Lord over it. Think about that. Jesus looking into the faces of these men who have given their lives to the law and to the adherence of the law. They have accused him of breaking and disrespecting the law of God, of not taking it seriously enough. But now he pulls out all the stops. He lays down the ultimate trump card. He knows the law. He understands the Sabbath. He ordained it. In fact, he was there on the first Sabbath. After creating all things in six days, he's the one that rested on the seventh. He's the author and designer of the Sabbath. It was his idea and his gift to his people, and they're the ones misusing it. Think about the power of this statement. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I rule over the law. I designed it, and I gave it to you. The Pharisees had been astounded by claims of Jesus before, but this one's above all. Their immediate reaction isn't recorded, but we'll see where this all leads in a few minutes. First, I want to say one more thing about Jesus and the Sabbath. We've already seen that he created the Sabbath, that he's sovereign over the Sabbath as Lord. But the scriptures also indicate that Jesus is the one who fulfills the Sabbath. Here's what I mean. I mentioned earlier that 
for the people of Israel, the Sabbath had a few purposes. It had a present purpose. It was a day of rest and remembrance. It had a purpose that was rooted in the past. They could look back at the rest that God accomplished for them when they, he freed them from being slaves in Egypt. But the Sabbath also had a future aspect. The Sabbath was a reminder and a pointer to a future rest. A rest that was to come. A greater and eternal Sabbath. And what we know is that Jesus is the one who came to accomplish that final rest. In a sense, he's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So we read in Hebrews chapter 4. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There is a Sabbath rest coming for the people of God. And what the book of Hebrews is pointing us towards is that Jesus is the one through whom we enter the rest and the only way to enter the rest. And this is the lesson that Jesus had been trying to communicate. Salvation is not by works of the law. Here's a people who are placing their hope in what they can do in their own abilities, in their own system of righteousness. And Jesus is saying over and over again, your system of works-based righteousness is not enough. It was never enough. The same is true today. There is only one way to have that future and eternal rest in God. The only way you can be granted right standing, the only way you can be forgiven of your sins is through the finished work of Jesus. He is the Lord of the Sabbath and he is the only one through whom we can be saved. That's why he came, so that we can be saved, so that we can enter his rest. This is why Jesus was set on destroying the system that the Pharisees had laid out. It was a system that was leading people to hell because it called on them to rely on what they could do. Pharisees approached Jesus trying to accuse him, but he would not stand accused. He declared he was the Lord of Sabbath. As we move into chapter three, we see another event that's closely tied to this one. We won't spend as long in these verses, but what we see here is that while in the first section, Jesus declares his authority as the Lord of the Sabbath, in this section, he demonstrates his authority as the Lord of the Sabbath. It's another scene, still on a Sabbath day and this time in the synagogue, and, and there's a chance that this is the same day. Perhaps the, the scene in the field was on the way to the synagogue, so perhaps this is all happening on that same day. Could be a week later, but it seems likely that these events are, are close together. What we have is Jesus once again on the Sabbath day being watched by the same group of Pharisees. They're all in the synagogue, and Mark tells us that there was a, a man there with a withered hand. We don't know anything about this man or, or even why he singled out here. Surely there was other people there with ailments. And we don't know if his hand issue was something that he was born with or if there's something that happened later in life, maybe from an accident. But either way, we're told that the Pharisees wondered if Jesus would use this as an opportunity to heal. And if he did, that was in violation of their law and they were ready to accuse him once again of breaking the Sabbath. Now, once again, we need to understand something about the, the scribal law. See, for them, the, the law allowed you to help or to heal a person on the Sabbath only if it would be necessary to save their life. But if they could last until after the Sabbath, then any help or any healing must wait until the Sabbath ended. But the Pharisees hoped that Jesus would heal him that day, not because they cared about this man or cared anything about his hand. They hoped that Jesus would heal because that would be a breaking of the Sabbath and a chance for them to accuse him. This was the highest form of Jewish piety. If they could catch him here, that would be something. Well, we're going to see that the Pharisees get what they want and that Jesus is going to heal the man. But before he does and before they can accuse him, he confronts them First, Let's pick up reading verse three. 
Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save a life or to kill? Now, remember the last time they spoke, Jesus had declared himself Lord of the Sabbath. But now he's coming back to them and asking them to interpret the law. Based on the law, should we use the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Should we use this day to, to save a life or to kill? Now, the questions show the wisdom of God. He knows that either way the Pharisees answer these questions, they are trapped. If they say that the Sabbath is for doing good, then Jesus should heal the man. But then they wouldn't be able to accuse him. And of course, there's no way to suggest that the Sabbath should be used for doing harm to someone. They're trapped and they know it. And Jesus' point is made. The Sabbath is a gift. And the Sabbath should be good, used for good. But they are so fixated on their legalistic structure that they won't even budge so that a man can be healed. We actually get a little more of the conversation in the Gospel of Matthew. There Jesus says, which one of you, if you had a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, which one of you, Pharisees, would not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So here he, he states it plainly, and he points a finger back at them and says, I know if your sheep fell into a pit, you would pull him out. But yet you're not going to give even more kindness to a man who's of great, so much more value than your sheep? He says it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He's shredding their system of legalism. And he's also exposing them as hypocrites. And actually, it's worse than that if you remember the second question that Jesus asked. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? Well, if we fast forward to verse 6, we see on that very day, that Sabbath day, the Pharisees were going to start forming their plans to kill Jesus. There on that day, and when they heard the question, they knew it. Is this day a day to save a life or to kill? He had spoken words that exposed them at every level. They are caught and they know it. And yet they remain silent. And that's what we see in verse 4. They're silent. They don't answer him. And as the silence lingers and Jesus looks at them, Mark tells us that Jesus has two reactions. Anger and grief. Why was he angry? Was he angry that they were willing to prevent a man from being healed to prove their point? Yeah, I think that's part of it. But I also think he was angry at the entire system that had been built over hundreds of years that made a relationship with God contingent on personal performance and works-based righteousness. And there are entire groups of people who prey on the weak and who look down on those who don't climb their ladders of arbitrary systems. And Jesus is angry that even as he stands before them as the only means of salvation, they mock him and accuse him and seek to kill him. He's angry. Not sinfully angry. Angry with a pure, righteous, and holy anger. He's also grieved. Grieved that they are blinded by their own sin and pride and won't even recognize that God in flesh is standing before them. Grieved by their hardness of heart. That through that hardness of heart, they're securing for themselves their own fate. Can't help but wonder how long that moment lasted. As Jesus waited for their answer. Here's the Pharisees sitting in stubborn silence. Jesus filled with both righteous anger and compassionate grief. And there's this man still standing there with a withered hand. I wonder how long that moment lasted. But what we see is that it ends with Jesus changing a man's life. 
Verse five, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand, which is ironic because that's the one thing that he could not do. He couldn't straighten out his hand. But here's where we see the healing power of God. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Healing is not the main focus of this passage. But how could we ever rush past something like this? With a word, Jesus transforms a man. He takes his hand from hindered and handicapped to healed. It's amazing. While we think of this display of the power of God, we may think in the back of our minds, maybe this would be the sign that was needed. As the Pharisees have felt the conviction as Jesus accused them. And now they see his power. Perhaps this would be enough to change their hearts and minds. But instead we see it further fuels their opposition. We read in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So I thought about this final verse. I couldn't help but have in my own heart the two emotions that we're told Jesus had. And not that I'm comparing myself to Jesus, but consider that these men were so embittered toward Jesus that they wanted him dead. A man who could heal and give life, and yet they wanted to kill him. And we know that eventually they would succeed. And of course, we know that the death of Jesus was the plan of God, and it is for our salvation. But it should do something in us to realize that when God in flesh came and lived on earth, there were people who wanted him dead. They were determined to kill the king of glory, the Lord of the very Sabbath they claimed to defend, the giver of the law whom they claimed to obey. There's a part of me that's filled with anger at the thought of it. At the same time, grief. Not only for them, but for so many like them. People we know. People who are so confident in their own righteousness that they refuse to humble themselves and to trust Jesus. They believe that they're good enough or kind enough or generous enough that God will accept them. And maybe they would never say they they hate Jesus or they want to destroy Jesus, but they've never been willing to give him their hearts. Well, This is a reminder for us that we have the call to go and to tell people, to help them see that there is only one way for them to be saved, only one way for them to be forgiven, only one way for them to enter eternal rest. Jesus came, the Lord of the Sabbath, and it's only through him that we can be saved. One thing we see in the life of the Pharisees is that we can spend our entire lives trying to get all the little things right. And yet we can still manage to miss the most important thing and the one thing that we really need. So I must ask you this morning, what are you trusting in for your salvation? There's only one way to be saved and his name is Jesus. He's the only one who had ever kept the law. And this is the gospel, that if we repent of our sins and our inability to keep the law, then Jesus will credit his righteousness, his perfect law-keeping on our behalf. He died, he shed his blood. He paid the price for our sins, so he takes our sins and we are granted his righteousness. And this is the only way of salvation. This is the Christian message. This is the message that we are called to proclaim. The question is, do we believe it and are we sharing it? Are you helping others see their need for him? We see the Pharisees. We see their need. Do we see the need of others around us? Or are you adding to the narrative? Suggesting, maybe by your silence, that people are good enough. We must be faithful to point them to Jesus. I wanted to end this morning by going back to a passage in Colossians. This is a passage that we studied together last year. It's a passage that speaks to many of the things that have been referenced in our story this morning. It's a passage that serves as a warning for us against 
trusting in those things that the Pharisees trusted in. It's also an encouragement, an encouragement for us to keep our eyes on Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, and to allow our vision of him to change the way we live. It's a reminder that not being a legalist doesn't mean that we don't care how we live. Let me say that a different way. We should want to obey Christ. We shouldn't be legalists, but we should want to please him and obey him. As those who have been saved by Jesus, we should desire to give him our lives. A warning, an encouragement, and a reminder. Consider Colossians chapter 2 as we close. Paul writes, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, in regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head that is Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you are alive in them still do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity of the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. If, you th- if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we do not have to rely on our own good works or our own righteousness to stand before you because we know that we never could. Thank you for sending Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, to stand in our place. God, as those who have repented and believed, who have received you, would you help us to live in a way that pleases you? Living in obedience, but not with hearts of legalism. Gracious and merciful towards others, but not ignoring sin. Compassionate and kind, but faithful with the truth. God, I ask that you would take your word. Take all that we've heard this morning and change us in a way that only you can. Ask all these things in the name of the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Church, I love you, and I'm hopeful that very soon we will be back in this room together. This morning we're going to be at 1045 on Zoom for a time of fellowship. I hope to see you there. As always, you are loved, you are not alone. Please, please reach out if you need anything. I'll look forward to seeing you soon.